0: Today, cancers run at five times the national average and cancers of the throat, lungs and breast are particularly common in semi Birth defects are three times the norm. Many children are mentally retarded and the incidence of Down syndrome is high. Almost all youngsters suffer from anemia while many young men are impotent. Psychological disorders are rife and suicide rates well above average Even among children, average life expectancy is 52. the collapse of the USSR, Kazakhstan, a former Soviet republic, was suddenly independent and suddenly in charge of a huge nuclear arsenal. Of course, the weapons were Soviet missiles, not Kazakh, but had been cited in the country as it was formerly used as a Soviet nuclear testing ground, indeed the most prominent and well-used Soviet nuclear testing ground. But independence had come along in 1991 so what now for that newly independent country who suddenly found themselves in possession of the world's fourth largest nuclear stockpile well they gave them up voluntarily, gladly gave them up even before independence they had already shut down the huge nuclear test site of Semipalatinsk in the east of the country After independence, the foreign minister told the Financial Times both decisions were strongly backed by our citizens. They know, more than any other population in peacetime, the catastrophic impact of nuclear weapons. The radioactive fallout from nearly 500 Soviet nuclear tests at Semipalatinsk caused illness and death on a sickening scale. Hundreds of thousands of people were ravaged by radiation. And the tests left huge areas of our land contaminated, even today. And the quote you heard at the beginning of the podcast, before the music, was from the Sunday Times, in an article by the former politician Struan Stevenson, who went out to Kazakhstan to the Semipalatinsk district to try and study what happened and to try and publicise it in the West – because arguably we don't really know about it when it comes to considering injury and illness and death from radiation in the Soviet Union, I would say Chernobyl got all the public's attention. And so Stuart Stevenson was trying to make us realise that similar nuclear horrors, albeit for different reasons, had happened in Kazakhstan. So, the foreign minister had gladly told the FT that nuclear weapons had been given up and the newly independent Kazakhstan would have nothing further to do with nuclear weaponry or nuclear weapons testing. And so, in 1991, they ended their involvement, of course, in the Soviet nuclear testing programme. The country had been involved from the very beginning, with the first Soviet atomic bomb, nicknamed Joe-1 by the Americans, detonated in Kazakhstan in the semi Palatin site in August 1949. So Kazakhstan was there, whether they liked it or not, from the first Soviet bomb to the last lowering of the red flag. Kazakhstan is a huge country. It's the biggest landlocked country on earth. Here in Britain, we often read silly, useless facts online. Like, um, did you know Texas is so large you could fit Britain inside it? And uh, according to Wikipedia, that's true. Britain could be nicely tucked inside the area of Texas, which occupies six hundred and ninety-five thousand square kilometers. Six hundred ninety-five thousand. Okay, cool. Quite big, I suppose. Kazakhstan occupies 2,724,000 square kilometres. Kazakhstan is big. And so we perhaps begin to see why the Soviets chose it as their testing ground. The specific area they picked was in eastern Kazakhstan, the far east of the country, 150 kilometres away from the city of Semipalatinsk. That city has since changed its name to semi, perhaps wanting to shake off the ugly nuclear associations. The testing site itself, outside the city of course, was known as the Polygon, and it was assembled in 1947 using slave labour from the gulags. So slave labour built the Polygon, and spying gave them the means to get an atomic bomb as early as 1949. I suppose all's fair in love and war. Now, the Soviet Union had two main nuclear testing grounds. Novaya Zemlya, up in the Arctic, where the big Tsar Bomba and others were tested. But most of the testing was done in eastern Kazakhstan, in the Polygon. Which, of course, is near the city of Semipalatinsk, who have now changed their name. Who could blame them? But there was a lot of change after independence. Uh, Kazakhstan also changed their capital city and changed its name. Once the capital was Almaty, but in ninety seven they changed it to Astana and then changed Astana's name, so the capital is currently Nur-Sultan. So a lot of change in Kazakhstan after independence. New names, new flag, new capital and the very clear and obvious rejection of nuclear weapons on their soil. But the legacy of all those nuclear tests, uh, 619 in total, according to Fred Pierce's book Fallout, that can't be so easily changed and shifted. Of those tests, 122 were atmospheric, meaning they were done above ground, throwing their fallout up and out into the air. The remainder were conducted underground, in a series of specially built tunnels. This made Semipalatinsk, or the Polygon, the busiest nuclear testing site on Earth, and also, in typical Soviet fashion, the most secretive. With local communities often being told nothing about what was going on, and given no warning of the explosions and no adequate safety advice. As Fred Pierce says in Fallout, many felt the ground shake and saw the flashes and mushroom clouds, but it didn't do to ask too many questions in the days of Joseph Stalin. We all know what type of bomb creates the worst fallout. A ground burst because it touches the ground, and so it gouges a crater, pulverises the land or the city which it touches, sucks up the debris into its mushroom cloud, where it later descends as lethal fallout. Well, the very first Soviet test, Joe one was done in Semipalatinsk, and it was detonated a mere 120 feet above the ground. That's going to create quite a lot of fallout. And yes, that fallout descended onto people living in wooden houses, which offered practically zero protection. Fred Pierce in his book tells us that some paltry efforts were made from the late 50s onwards to inform or protect the locals, when soldiers would enter the villages and tell people to cover themselves in white sheets during the tests and not look at the sky. Afterwards, They might like to sip red wine to help fend off the radiation. White sheets and red wine. Just as useless as protect and survive, or duck and cover, I suppose. There were even occasions where villages would be evacuated, so the people would be moved out while the test took place, but their livestock wasn't. So when they returned, they would resume eating their eggs and butter and milk and meat from their animals, who had, of course, stayed behind, absorbing all the radiation their owners happily missed, and passing it right back to them. From the mid-sixties onwards, tests moved underground, And so a huge network of tunnels exists under Degelen Mountain, often nicknamed Plutonium Mountain. The Soviets had crammed these tunnels with tanks and helicopters so they might see how their hardware withstood nuclear blast. And later, after they had departed and the Soviet Union was no more, the Americans came in to try and clean up the area And secure the place. They weren't doing that just out of kindness of course, they were doing it out of the genuine and justified fear that all this radioactive material and the instability of the fall of the Soviet Union could fall into the wrong hands. So they turned up and said, let us help you please in securing the site. So one of the tasks was to seal these filthy contaminated tunnels. And they did that, but it was reported that locals were simply digging their way back in so that they could get to the valuable scrap metal inside. But the clean-up continued and in 2012 a picnic was held at the mountain to celebrate its completion. All the tunnels blocked and guards posted to the mountain to make sure that nothing sinister was happening. Job done. Well, let's relax. Well, not quite. Here's Fred Pierce again on whether we might be permitted to relax, now that Plutonium Mountain has been plugged up. Plutonium has a half-life of thousands of years. How long will the guards and drones be around? How long will the concrete hold? Will local knowledge of the riches in the mountain outlast the diligence of the security? Maybe not for long. Only months after the celebratory picnic, Harvard University's Belfer Centre reported that a Kazakh survey team had found five more areas around the mountain where hitherto unknown plutonium experiments had taken place. They contained enough plutonium at high enough concentrations to pose a proliferation risk. The centre quoted Byron Ristvet of the US government's Defence Threat Reduction Agency, saying that, quote, in some cases, a guy with a pickup truck and a shovel could accumulate enough for a bomb. The Plutonium Mountain, it seems, may not yet have yielded up all its secrets. And so what are the consequences for the people of eastern Kazakhstan? As we heard at the beginning from Stroun-Stevenson's research, cancers at five times the national average, birth defects at three times the national average, anemia, impotence, suicide and a shortened life expectancy in 1999 the observer visited Semipalatinsk and was shown round a local medical academy where they had been keeping jars of stillborn fetuses they'd been collecting these since 1955 without the knowledge of course of the KGB and they'd been collecting them as proof that something here was going hideously wrong I'll quote here from the article. One fetus has hydrocephalus, the accumulation of water in the head. Another died due to exencephaly, the absence of bones on the roof of the skull. Then there is the boy born with only one eye in the centre of his head. From the Guardian again later, following another visit to Semipalatinsk, In the library, the village elders vent their fury at the Kazakh government. Then a man of 80 comes to the lectern. In a dignified and quiet voice, he explains that only two years ago he was happily married with a total of ten children and grandchildren. Now his wife is dead from cancer, while eight of his children and grandchildren have died. Of the two remaining grandchildren... His eldest granddaughter passed her business studies diploma only last year, then committed suicide, overwhelmed by the family tragedy. Now, we might wonder why the name of Semipalatinsk isn't well known. The Guardian, of course, did great work. If you look through their archives, there are various visits in the 90s and 2000s to Semipalatinsk, to the villages, to the orphanages, to the clinics. And of course, as mentioned, there's the work of Stuart Stevenson. But it's still, it's not a a household name. Unlike Chernobyl, for example. Chernobyl, of course, was a Soviet nuclear disaster. Everyone has heard of Chernobyl. There are documentaries and there are dramas about it. Everyone has heard of Chernobyl. Everyone knows of the horror. Of the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. But we don't all know about Semipalatinsk. Where are the Sky Atlantic dramas about Semipalatinsk? Radiation sickness and a blighted landscape and deformed children, and we have that with Chernobyl and we had it with Semipalatinsk, but one is virtually unknown, I would argue, in the West. Maybe it's because Chernobyl was sudden. It was, of course, it happened in an instant. It was an explosion. It couldn't be hidden. We all know the story that uh, Sweden, a nuclear power station in Sweden, began detecting um, plumes of fallout coming from somewhere in the Western Soviet Union. It couldn't be hidden. It was a huge, tense, dramatic event. And it happened in an instant. It happened one night in Pripyat. And the West quickly found out about it, whereas the nuclear horrors of Semipalatinsk happened slowly and secretively over the years, from 1949 up until I believe 1989. That was the last test, I think, 1988 or 89. So over those forty-something years, the horror in Semipalatinsk was playing out, and there was no Swedish. Um, technician in a lab realising what was happening and spreading the news elsewhere it happened slowly and gradually and quietly and perhaps human nature being what it is, that's simply not dramatic enough for us the explosion of Chernobyl is more interesting than the slow, horrible withering of Semi-Palatinsk. Let me say thank you this week to Amanda Lee for joining my Patreon and to Tim Westmeyer, who has increased his monthly donation. Tim also has a nuclear podcast where he analyses nuclear war films. It's called Supercritical. And yes, there's a Big Fat Threads episode. I've uploaded a few nuclear videos to my YouTube channel. If you just can't get enough, just search on YouTube for Atomic Hobo. I put a video up today where we talk about um, semi and I read a few extracts from the Fred Pierce book. And remember, if you enjoy my nuclear work, please consider donating through Patreon. You can look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo, donate as much or as little as you like, and you can cancel at any time.